Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I once read a story about a little boy who wanted a baby brother. His father had told him that God loves it when we come to him and with our needs in prayer. And so the boy started praying for a baby brother. But after a couple of weeks, no baby came. So he quit praying. A couple of months later, though, this little boy was overjoyed and excited to hear that his mother was expecting. Nine months later, the father presented two newborn twin boys to his oldest son. But he said, son, aren't you, aren't you glad you prayed for a baby brother? To which the oldest son replied, well, yes, I am, Dad, but aren't you glad I stopped praying after two weeks? <laughs> There's something attractive and inspiring about confidence. We all, we all crave confidence, and we envy it when we see it in others. But the humor in that story I just told you is also a humbling truth. This little boy demonstrated more confidence in prayer than most adults. We're continuing our series in 1 John today uh, called Authentic Walk. And uh, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hands and uh, one of our ushers will bring one to you. Or if you've got a Bible app, you can fire that up on your mobile device. I also want to encourage you to take out the sermon notes in the worship folder you received when you came in this morning. I've got an outline there for you to follow along uh, with me, some blanks for you to fill in so that hopefully you can go back in a few days or a few months and maybe review this uh, passage when you need some encouragement in your prayer life. Our theme verse for this series in 1 John has been uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. If you haven't underlined it yet in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, but you have it on your sermon notes, and it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's say it out loud together. John says, Whoever says I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John, for the last several weeks, has, uh, as a seasoned ministry veteran, been telling us, well, he's in essence been pounding one, symbol, excuse me, one single nail with one simple truth, and he's hitting it from several different angles. And that simple truth is this. Real Christians really walk with Christ. In other words, you can't claim to know Christ as your Savior but not walk with Him. To John, that just doesn't compute. That, that, that's incongruent to him. Real Christians, what we've been learning from John in this letter for the last several weeks and five chapters worth of teaching is that real Christians love Christ, they walk with Christ, they imitate Christ, they grow in Christ, serve Christ, sacrifice for Christ, and if necessary, they consider an honor to suffer for Christ. Last week, John wanted us to know that despite the threat of false converts and uh, false teachers, 
the allure of the world, the struggle against our own sin, and the challenge of loving others in the church. John said last week that if, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then you still have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help you overcome the world, and you still have eternal life. And those facts change everything. They change everything. Thus, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed. And when we get discouraged, we need to remind ourselves of those things, that this world's not my home, and the Lord's given me what I need to overcome this world, and then I'm going to be with him longer than I'll be here. So in today's passage, John wants us to know another one of the many benefits of knowing Christ as your Savior is that we can have confidence in approaching him in prayer. Thus, the big idea for today is this. Real Christ followers are confident and expectant in prayer. They are confident and expectant in prayer. Now, it's important to distinguish the fact that our confidence is never in ourselves when we pray. It's never in our ability to persuade God to do what we want Him to do. Or it's never in our, our, our confidence is not certainly not in our ability to come up with solutions that God couldn't come up with Himself. And another thing that's important to know is that our expectations in prayer should never be just limited to getting what we've asked for. There's something greater that we need to get in prayer, and that's Him. That's Him in His will. And so after four chapters of explaining in great detail the many benefits that come from knowing Christ, the Apostle John wants us to know that another benefit is confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered. Thus, there are two questions, at least, that he answers in the verses we're going to look at today, which are, how do I know whether God hears my prayers? And another question I think he's going to answer in this passage is, how do I know if he will answer? Will, will I be heard? And will he answer? And so with that, Look with me at 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth I think John is telling us about prayer, and that is that the miracle of prayer is that he hears us. The miracle of prayer is that he hears us. John says, and this is the confidence that we have. He's saying, I think he's saying that because of what Christ has done for us, we can approach the throne of the king of the universe in prayer, in boldness, and with freedom. We can be honest with God. And certainly we saw that in my series that I did last fall in the Psalms, uh, where David was just brutally honest with God about how he felt, but always seemed to come back to a surrender and a trust in the Lord and what he was doing. But let's make sure we don't miss or fly by at kind of 90 miles per hour the three most important words in verse 14. 
And they are this. I think they, they are arguably the most important words in this verse, if not the whole passage. He hears us. You see, our selfish sin nature, and I'm including myself here, I, I, I tend to do this, and I'm very, those of you who know me well, I'm very results-oriented. I like to see things get done. So when I pray, I want to see effects happen. I want to see some stuff going. Let's go. Rock and roll, man. Well, our sin nature wants to skip ahead to, the, to, to, to verse 15 where it appears to say, God will give me whatever I want. And in doing so, we kind of miss those three important words that he hears us. If we understand who God is and what his word says about us and how, and how we've offended him with our sin, and, then, and then, then thus the first miracle of prayer to me is not that he answers prayer, it's that he even listens to our prayers. That, that we even get into the throne room at all. I mean, that, the, the cherry on top of that miracle ice cream sundae is that then he answers prayer. But there's a condition, John says. Notice in verse 14, if we ask according to his will. Well, how do we know what his will is? Well, part of his will is revealed in, in his word. This is one of many reasons you've heard me urge you many times to become lifelong students of the Word. That's because the believer that knows the Word of God can pray the Word back to God. And if you pray the Word of God, you almost always pray God's will. Because God's Word reveals things that He wants to happen. So when you pray God's will, which is revealed in God's word, you're more likely to see answers to prayer, which then in turn encourages you to pray more. So if the miracle of prayer is that God even hears us at all, then how should we pray? Well, here's uh, the first application for you to write down. Uh, I think we need to pray humbly and reverently. Yes, we can pray with confidence, but... If it's a miracle that he even hears us at all, that should affect our attitude in prayer, that we pray humbly and reverently. We should have the attitude that David did in Psalm 8. You might remember I preached on Psalm 8 last fall, where David says, What is man that you are mindful of him? It was most likely that David was looking at one night at the vast expanse of the universe in a star-filled sky and going, Oh my goodness. The God who made all that cares about me and what's happening in my life. He, he listens to me, little old me made from dust. That humbled David. Shortly after I came to know Christ as my Savior as a freshman in college at the University of Iowa, Technically, Ohio State University alums say it that way. But um, I started attending a small Baptist church just outside of town. 
And um, while I was there, I had the opportunity to observe one of the senior saints in that church. Uh, his name was Ed. Ed was a retired businessman who was handsome and debonair, always wore a suit to church. He was dignified. He, he had silver hair like Moses. And he was the most interesting man in the world before that beer campaign started. He was just like, man, that guy, he's just, he's just cool, you know, his age, retired and everything. He, just, he still looks good. And yet, what was, when he talked, his voice was silky smooth. And, and, and when he shared wisdom, it was Solomon-like. He, you could just tell he spent time with the Lord. He was like Moses. In fact, we called him that, me and some of the young adults. We, we jokingly called him Moses behind his back. But we meant it endearingly because whenever we saw Ed on Sundays or at men's Bible study during the week... He, he, was, he had the countenance like he had been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Like he had been with the Lord during the week, and he just came down the mountain to come to our church. That's what it was like. And, and one of the reasons we felt that way is that we, we loved whenever Ed was asked to pray in our worship services. And so after a few songs by the worship team, sometimes Ed would come up and he'd be asked by the pastor and elders to pray and he would come up and he would pray, and when he did so, there was a depth and a warmth that just reflected an intimacy with the Lord that none of us had yet, but we wanted. And, 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 and something that was also interesting about how he prayed is that he would, he would come up, let's say this was the podium, he would come up and he would say, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church, and would you join me as we go to prayer? And so you could see all the heads go like that in the, in the congregation. And so we would bow, and he would bow like this. Heavenly Father, there'd be this long pause. And there's this long pause so that I, I, I'd, I'd, find, I'd be sitting next to Maya, you know, in row five or whatever, you know, and after two seconds, I'm going. Is he okay? Did he forget to pray? Or did he pray already? Did I miss it? Like, was it that fast? Or does he need medical help or anything? You know? And then, you know, it would, it would happen at men's Bible study during the week where we'd be sitting around a group and. Hey, Brother Ed, would you mind opening up in prayer before we get into the Word today? Sure. So all the guys bow their heads. And there's this long pause. And this is even before internet and mobile phones, by the way. You know, this is mid-90s. So, you know, we didn't have Wi-Fi and high-speed internet back then. So even my sense of patience was a little longer than it is today. But I'd still be like, am I supposed to pray? Did he say Ed? I thought Ed was going to pray. Maybe he said carry, you know, so like it was those awkward moments where I didn't know whether I should jump in and pray. <laughs> like maybe Ed wants me to take the ball this time and carry it across the finish line, you know. But I discovered after I grew in my walk with the Lord and my prayer life and studied the scriptures, I, it took me some time to figure out what Ed was doing during those pregnant pauses. 
I, I think Ed was, he was quieting his heart. I think he was humbling himself. And, and I think he was reminding himself of who he was about to speak with. It, 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 he kind of reminds me of some, you know, some movies I've watched that are kind of docudramas about the, you'll say, the Victorian era where somebody's going to go in and meet with his royal highness, the king in Great Britain, and, and they're told, okay, do this, don't do that, don't ever do this, and there's etiquette and how you go in and talk to the king. And, and, and then, like, the, the ushers bring the guest to the door, and, and it's like the guest goes, And then the doors open, and there's the king at the end of the long room sitting on his throne. And, and, and the guest walks in with great reverence and respect and your majesty and, and this, and then, and then bows before turning and walking out. And it just reminds me of scenes like that. The longer I walk with the Lord, I, the more I'm learning how much I take prayer for granted. And I think this is because privileges become entitlements the longer we have them. We get used to having them. And thus, the longer I have access to God in prayer, the more I seem to take it for granted. And I'm I'm trying to to change this, because I don't want the privilege of prayer to become an entitlement to where I start making demands. Maybe you need to do this as well. Maybe you can pray for me in that area. But let's pray humbly and reverently and remember who we're talking to. So the miracle of prayer is first that he even hears us because he doesn't have to listen to us. Next, we'll look at verse 15. John continues to talk about prayer, and he says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Here's number two in your outline. The second truth about prayer that John's making is that the confidence in prayer is that he will answer us. The confidence in prayer is that he will answer us. Several years ago, there was a small town in which there were no liquor stores. Eventually that changed when a nightclub opened up on Main Street and members of a local church that uh, were aware of the dangers of having a nightclub in town and what, what a nightclub brings with it, some of the sins and problems it can create in the community, um, they were so upset that they conducted several all-night prayer meetings during which they asked the Lord to burn down the nightclub. Well, within a couple of weeks, the nightclub was struck by lightning. And it was completely destroyed by the fire that followed. The owner, who knew how the church had been praying, decided to sue the church for damages. His attorney claimed that their prayers had caused the loss. The congregation, on the other hand, hired a lawyer to fight the charges. And after much deliberation on the case, the judge 
declared this. It's the opinion of the court that regardless of where the guilt may lie, the nightclub owner believes in the power of prayer more than the church members do. I read that story, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we got sued as a church? Think about that for a second. Because our confidence in prayer stopped the spread of sin in our community. And of course, certainly, if the Lord can bring lightning down on something because of our prayers, then he can take care of attorney's fees, right? I mean, the scriptures give us several examples of prayer moving the heart of God. For example, we know that Moses got victory over the Amalekites in Exodus 17 because of prayer. We know that Hannah, who was infertile and barren, received a child in 1 Samuel chapter 1 through prayer. We know that King Hezekiah was healed in 2 Kings chapter 20 by crying out to the Lord. Daniel, for example, got safety in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6 because of prayer. Peter was released from prison in Acts chapter 12 because the church outside of prison was praying for his release. So the Lord does answer prayer in the affirmative. And sometimes he answers with no or not yet. I don't think I need to convince any of you that God answers prayer. I sensed as I was studying this, I sensed just from the Spirit as I was looking at this passage that the folks here listening and listening online on our podcast, you know there's power in prayer and that God answers prayer. Instead, I think I need to address, and I think where we struggle, and I know I do, if you don't struggle with this, then I'll just preach to myself for the next few minutes, I think I need to address why the Lord sometimes doesn't answer our prayers or at least doesn't answer them the way we wish he would. And so here's on the back side, the second side of your sermon note handout, six reasons God may not answer your prayers. Because maybe you're like me and there are some things you have been pleading with the Lord for and pleading and pleading and praying and praying and praying, and it feels like you have prayed more than you've slept and you've prayed more than you've eaten and you're just not seeing the things in Scripture come true that he did for other people, and you're wondering, what is wrong with me? If you've been there, you're not alone. I have felt that way, and I've experienced that, and certainly uh, we learned last fall in the Psalms series that David went through that too. In Psalm 13, in Psalm 22, and so on. And so here's the first reason the Lord may not answer your prayers or respond. In letter A is that you may not know him. You may not know him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it's a popular verse. It's often quoted in May when there's National Prayer Day. Uh, the Lord says, if my people, if my people... My people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's important to note in 2 Chronicles 7.14, the Lord didn't say, if all people, 
No, 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 the pronoun matters. He says, if my people. It's a select group called out from the world. It's not everybody, it's my people. All the promises in the scripture regarding prayer are directed towards those that have a relationship with the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Just as you are not likely to respond to a phone call or a text from a stranger, so the Lord does not answer prayers from people he does not know. Now that is important to really take seriously. Don't brush by this on me because in, 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 in America with its strong evangelical presence and we got a little sliver of the Bible Belt here in Bakersfield, it's very easy to think that because you know the gospel intellectually and can articulate the Christmas and the Easter story together, you can assume that you know Christ when you really just know about Christ. You don't really know him. And so if you're going a long time without seeing answers to prayer, it's good to do a heart check and to make sure, do I know him or do I just know about him? Next, letter B, you may have the wrong motives. James says in chapter 4, verse 3 of his letter that sometimes we don't see answers to prayer because we ask with selfish motives instead of being committed to God's will and glory. Are your prayers mainly about restoring your comfort? Or fixing messes that you got yourself into? Or satisfying your selfish desires? then start praying for things that God wants done. And you'll start seeing him move in surprising ways. The famous and influential 19th century preacher, F.B. Meyer, he once wrote this, We have an irresistible argument in prayer when we plead for God's glory. Irresistible to the Lord. Next, letter C, the third reason you may not see answers to prayer. You may have unrepentant sin. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says that if we have known unconfessed sin, the Lord will not hear our prayers. This is why it is important to keep short accounts with the Lord and to start prayer out with confession and examining your heart. I mean, let's be honest, just as you wouldn't give your car keys to a teenager that had broken the rules in your home, so the Lord does not also reward bad behavior with answered prayers. It's out of the goodness of his loving heart, the Lord withholds answers to prayer so that we deal with the more important issue, which is our sin first. Because our sin is what clogs the plumbing between us and him. And the Lord wants to deal with the block between us so that the relationship with us can be dealt with first. Then he's more than willing to answer the prayer need that we have. 
So have the scriptures revealed a sin pattern to you? Or has the spirit been whispering to you about something that you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for? If so, I would urge you to do business with him so that your prayers can be heard again. Here's letter D. He may want something better for you. He may want something better for you. Now, that sounds cliche, but when I say it, I don't mean what other people mean. You see, because a lot of evangelicals say that, oh, that's okay, you got turned down for 15 jobs, that's all right. The Lord has a better job that's going to pay you three times more, that's why. Well, let's celebrate that. No, not necessarily. So, so what the Lord considers better for you isn't always what we think is better for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul asked the Lord three times to remove an affliction that he had. He called it a thorn in the flesh. However, the Lord refused because the affliction kept Paul humble and made him more dependent on the Lord. So thus, you see, what was better for Paul was to keep the thorn, not to remove it and have his comfort restored. What that tells me is that sometimes the Lord says, my no is better for you than your yes. Nobody who heard what I just said likes that. I don't even like it. We don't like to hear that. Are you kidding me? My no is better than my yes? What? However, I've been learning in my walk with the Lord that one of the root reasons we're disappointed with God when he doesn't answer our prayers is that we still think we know what's best for us and not him. So then when God doesn't do what we want, we go, how dare you? What are you thinking? Where are you at, man? What are you smoking, God? This is why you've heard me say before that if you leave the doctrine of progressive sanctification out of your theology, you will be continually disappointed in the Lord. When he tries to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ, by answering some prayers and not answering other prayers. Because that is his ultimate goal for the Christ follower, is to make them more like Christ, into the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. You see, that's after the Romans 8, 28 verse we all like to quote, which is God works all things together for good. And then verse 29, which we like to leave off, which is the good is becoming more like Christ. But we leave 29 off because we like 28 because 28 allows us to say the good is what I want. It's everything I want. That's good. God's going to give me everything I want. Dr. Howard Hendricks, the popular... Bible exposition professor at Dallas Seminary, where I went to school, he used to tell a story in his sermons on prayer about being a young single man in Philadelphia. In, in the story, he, he alludes to the fact that he was a handsome young single man. 
Well, he was aware that certain mothers in his church had set their sights on him for their daughters to marry. And so one particular mother with an unattractive daughter, made in God's image, but just not attractive to him, qualify that. This mother says, Howie, I want you to know that I'm praying that you're going to marry my daughter someday and become my son-in-law. And then after Dr. Hendricks would tell that story, he would, he would look at the congregation with his Mr. Magoo eyes, he liked to do, and say, have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayers? <laughs> so one of the reasons you may not see an answer to prayer yet, or the one you want, is that he has something better for you. Maybe even a more attractive spouse. No, just kidding. <laughs> Letter E. It may be that what you want isn't God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is his hand on the steering wheel of time, guiding people and events to accomplish his overall plan for the world. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David fasted and prayed that the child that was born to Bathsheba out of his adulterous relationship with her would be spared. But God said no and took the child's life. A baby died because God killed the baby in that situation. And I think one of the reasons, and by the way, Psalm 51 is David's record. It's his prayer of repentance. So he was genuinely repentant about what he did. But one of the reasons I think the Lord uh, did not yield to David's prayers to spare the child was that God wanted David to never forget the effect his sin had on others. And I think the Lord had other plans as well he was orchestrating in the kingdom at that time. Thus, for example, your prayer for sunshine and great weather on your child's wedding day may be less important to, the, to God than the prayer that a farmer nearby is praying for rain. You ever thought about that? The farmer praying for rain to water his crops so he can feed his family and make a living while you're praying, Lord, give us sunshine so we have a great wedding day. Only God can sort that contradiction out, right? Maybe, or maybe your desperate prayer that God would delay your air, airplane flight from taking off because you're running late, it may contradict the prayers of someone else on the plane that God has ordained to arrive at their destination on time. I just share those examples to say, I think we have to be careful that we don't get myopic in our prayers where we think it's all about me and my world and what I can see and there's nothing else happening outside of my orbit. God's only doing what he's doing in my life. No. There's a bigger plan happening that he's orchestrating. Finally, letter F, the sixth reason you may not see answers to prayer, is that you may want something that isn't God's timing yet. 
It's just not God's timing yet. In John chapter 11, Jesus was notified that his close friend Lazarus was dying, and instead of coming right away, Jesus delayed and waited three days. His delay caused Martha to question his goodness. Lord, if you had been here, she says, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus' delay meant that his friends got to see a resurrection instead of a healing. I sometimes wonder how often we're willing to settle for healing in our prayers when the Lord would rather give us a resurrection. You see, after the resurrection of Lazarus, nobody was going around going, oh, he still should have been here on time. Man, he's three days late. No, not when they saw Lazarus walk out. In fact, I remember hearing one author say, uh, uh, one theologian say that if Jesus had not called Lazarus' name specifically, all the bodies in the grave would have come out. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody was standing there after Lazarus comes out of the grave from being dead three days, buried in a cave. No, I don't think anybody, at least it's not recorded in John 11. If you find it there, let me know. I'd love to see it. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I don't think anybody went, you know, Jesus, though, you could have just healed him. I mean, you didn't have to make it that hard. If, if you would have just dropped what you were doing, Jesus, and you could have left and managed your time better and gotten here sooner, we wouldn't have needed to go through all this. In fact, you didn't even have to come. By the way, I've heard that you can heal people from long distance. Why didn't you just say the word like you did that one father whose child was sick? You could have just said the word, go home, and, he, and Lazarus is healed. Why not do that? No, but you had to make us wait. So how do we apply this? Here's your next application. At least one that comes to mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit's going to give you another. An application is simply, what do I do with what I've been taught? What do I need to change in my thinking, my behaviors? Is there something I need to start doing, stop doing? But here's one that comes to mind. That is, don't question his love if you don't get what you want. Don't question his love if you don't get what you want. You see, his unconditional love for us was demonstrated in the gospel, and it's declared throughout the scriptures. But if we don't hold our request with an open hand, we can easily become like the toddler who screams at his parent, if you love me, you would give me what I want. Really? You wouldn't tolerate that. In his excellent book, All Things for Good, I think this is recommended in your worship folder, Thomas Watson shares this insight about prayer and God's goodness. Watson says, if it is good for us, then we shall have it. And if it is not good for us, then the withholding of it is still good. So don't question his love if you don't get what you want. Let's look back at the text and look at the final two verses, verses 16 and 17 together. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. A wrongdoing is, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Here's number three, the final point in your outline. I think what John is saying here in verses 16 and 17 is that the blessing of, from prayer is interceding for others. The, the blessing from prayer is interceding for others. To intercede means to plead on behalf of someone in trouble or to help reconcile differences between two parties. So who would be the two parties in this case? Well, obviously it would be the sinner and God. The, the, the friend, the brother or sister in Christ, or the family member that, that is straying in their walk with the Lord and thus estranged from God. And so what John is talking about here in verses 16 and 17 is interceding for that brother, sister, or loved one, or spouse, or friend who, who is falling into sin and praying and interceding that they would be restored and back into good fellowship with the Lord. Now, much has been written by theologians on these two verses because they are difficult to interpret. However, I think we need to be careful not to confuse the forest for the trees here. John is talking about prayer in the context. Thus, I think John is saying that one of the many ways we can love one another is to pray for those that are stuck in sin. He's pointing out the fact that we shouldn't just pray for the physical needs of others, but the spiritual ones as well. And that's because if we truly love one another, then we will minister to the most important needs that we all have. And those are spiritual ones. Because they affect our relationship with the Lord. And our relationship with the Lord is the most important relationship we can have. It is number one. So even though the sin pattern we are observing in a brother or sister may not be life-threatening or bring God's swift judgment, we should still take it seriously. Next, John says, but there is a sin that leads to death. He makes a distinction. There are some sins that God does seem to have less patience for, and they do bring his swift judgment. We don't know exactly what these sins are, but there are examples in the scriptures when God brings a child of his home because they just keep misbehaving. He takes them home early because they're doing more harm for him down on earth than what they would do in heaven with him. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 talks about this. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Proverbs 10, 27. Proverbs 11, 19. Proverbs 13, 14. Proverbs 19, 16. And if you want those, talk to me after the service and I can give you those. Or you can listen to the podcast and write them down later. In his classic devotional book, My Utmost for My Highest, the Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers comments on 1 John 5.16. And he shares an insight that blew me away when I read it because I had never thought about this until I saw what Oswald Chambers took out of it. 
Chambers explains what we should do when we discern a spiritual need or a brother or sister or spouse that's caught in sin. He says this, If we are not heedful of the way the Spirit of God works in us, we will become spiritual hypocrites. We see where other folks are failing, and we turn our discernment into the insult of criticism instead of intercession on their behalf. Discernment is God's call to intercession, never fault-finding. May we learn to intercede so wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ will be abundantly satisfied with us as intercessors. Now, if you're not picking up what Chambers is laying down here, let me say it another way. I think this means that if you struggle with having a critical spirit, then you should be one of the best prayer warriors in the church. And you shouldn't criticize or correct another believer until you have prayed extensively for their perceived fault first. And this is why. Because when you pray for someone's salvation or growth in Christ, you are helping to reconcile them to the most important person in the universe that they need to be in a relationship with. And that's Jesus Christ. And thus, if anything is affecting their relationship with Jesus or keeping them from Jesus, that's got to become the most important thing to pray for. Because without that relationship... It'll be hell for them. So, application. I think verses 16 and 17 are a strong reminder from John to keep things in perspective. And that is, pray for the spiritual needs of others more than their physical needs. It doesn't mean we fail to pray for physical needs. There certainly are examples in scriptures where the Lord uh, delights in meeting physical needs. But John is trying to sort of overcorrect here and say, but don't forget the spiritual. That's more important. That's eternal. The physical stuff's just temporal. Thus, praying for a person, only praying for a person's physical needs and for their comfort, is short-sighted because it's temporal. They're going to be here less, and they're going to be with the Lord longer if they know Christ. But when we pray for someone's relationship with the Lord, we are unsheathing the most powerful weapon in the universe to address the most important need a person has, which is a deep, intimate, growing relationship with the Lord. So we need to remember, although the Lord delights in answering prayers for physical needs, our physical needs and comfort are not his top priority. Which, by the way, might be why you're not seeing some answers to prayer. Because maybe you're just praying for comfort, or you're just praying for the temporal need, and you're missing the spiritual lesson he's trying to do. But when we pray for their spiritual needs, we are definitely praying for what God wants for them. Now, sometimes 
the physical and the spiritual are intertwined. One example of this is a story that I've read about my alma mater, Dallas Theological Seminary. It was founded in 1924, and shortly after it opened, it almost had to close. The school was struggling financially, and the leaders had just a few days to decide whether to keep the school open or not. Well, three people were awakened at 5 a.m. in the morning by the Lord on a Saturday morning. Dr. William Anderson, who was a Dallas-area pastor, instrumental in starting the school. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the president and founder of the school. And then a donor. Neither of the three knew that the others had been awakened, but all three were impressed by the Lord that they needed to pray about the seminary's financial burden. And so compelled by the Holy Spirit to respond to the need, it took about two weeks for the donor to get his financials in place and get the money ready. And after two weeks of waiting, the school's founder and some of the faculty members were praying together in the seminary's office. And when they had finished praying, they sat back for a few minutes in silence. When all of a sudden there was a knock on the door. It was the donor who had been woken up two weeks earlier at 5 a.m., the same time that the local pastor and the president had been woken. And the donor came in with a gift of $10,000 for the school that allowed it to stay open. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but this is 1924. So it was huge. I love that story because... It reminds us that God can still do miracles through prayer. He can meet spiritual needs, which the seminary was doing, and he can meet physical needs. And for those reasons, real Christ followers are confident and expectant in prayer. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.